Hi, everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is show number five for September 9th on Wednesday, 2009. I'm Paul Fox. And I'm Kevin, joining in. And we're here again to talk about all the latest and greatest happenings in Hong Kong cinema, Asian cinema, and world cinema. Um, before we get into our news, Kevin, anything interesting happening with you? I know you've been going to uh, one of the festivals here and you've started school. Yes, uh, my school year has started, my final year, and I just finished up the Summer International Film Festival. So September will be a break um, before the other two film festivals and in Hong Kong. How about you, Paul? Your school year just started as well? Yeah, semester has started, meeting lots of new students, lots of work to get done, lots of preparation for classes, and no time to watch as many movies as I would like to. Uh, Kevin, you have some a couple news stories that you'd like to start us off with? Yes, uh, Hong Kong has chosen its um, submission for the Best Foreign Film at the Academy Awards. Last year, it was Painted Skin, God knows why. This year, um, they're going a little bit more respectable route with uh, Young Fan, who hasn't made a movie since, I believe, was it Peach Blossoms? Cherry Blossoms? Um, you remember? Yeah, I think that was his. I think that was his last film. Yes, I think it's been six, seven years. It's the film called uh, Prince of Tears. Uh, it's about the, you know, it's about the Taiwanese white terror period uh, where the Kuomintang um, persecuted uh, possible communists. This is interesting. Uh, for the second, at least for the second year in a row, Hong Kong has chosen a film not about Hong Kong to represent itself at the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. I. And I don't know, I, I, I've heard that Prince of Tears is actually quite good, and I'm sure it is. Yong Fan is, uh, he has an eye for visual uh, content, but I would think that, you know, the, the, the whatever committee that decides these things would try and, you know, pick a film that represents his hometown. Yeah, well, and that, that raises a good point. Uh, I know the, the articles I've read um, that some of the filmmakers have said that they're, there is some criticism coming from local from locals saying that is this really you know is this really a Hong Kong film? Um, mm -hmm. what, what do you think? I mean, from what is being said in, for example, in the South China Morning Post article that I read, they said as long as the producer, director, and scriptwriter are from Hong Kong, that they meet the requirements for uh, the Oscars in terms of labeling this a Hong Kong film. Well, the thing is, isn't just one guy. I mean, Young Fan is the writer, producer, and director of the film. Well, Fruit Chan is also one of the producers, so I okay. guess they kind of um, see his participation in, in producing as uh, you know, another sort of Hong Kong person being on board. But just all sorts of loophole of these things, these award things in Hong Kong. I mean, just like how claustrophobia managed to just play for one week, uh, open. To screenings only for friends of the director of the, of the film company managed to be uh, eligible for this year's um, Hong Kong Film Awards. Yeah, and same for Painted Skin the year before. Just they always find these kind of loopholes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I, I have no doubt that Yan Fan can make a good film. Uh, and are the, the the question is here: Are they really trying to pigeonhole something in as a Hong Kong film that they think has a chance? because they know that regular Hong Kong films, the production, there's just not enough productions coming out anymore. And those productions which are coming out, the, the quality is just not there. 
So. I'm wondering if this will be another case with less caution the year before where it was submitted as a Taiwan film, but then all sorts of trouble came about. Yeah. And, and another thing to think about, too, is, is, is this going to cause any, is this going to make any waves with China? You know, especially if a film like this with dealing with the kind of content that it's dealing with is going to rub China the wrong way. All right. So yeah. you, you want to go on to the next story? Yes, um, the Chrissy Chow Slim Beauty ad has been uh, making quite a wave in Hong Kong. First, it was the one where she takes her clothes off to reveal a bikini body in the middle of Central. Have you seen that one, Paul? Is that the one? Um, now that's it, not the that's not the new one, right? The new one, she's like on a beach. Yeah, yeah, and... this is the one before. This is the one that got people attention where okay, she's in the, the middle of Central. The first and... one where she's just basically walking through Hong Kong streets with a bikini top on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That one was the. You know, I like that one. But then the second ad, the, after that one got really popular, um, then she made another one where she's on the beach and then she comes out of water and two guys with surfboard begins to peel off, uh, control the surfboard to try and control her. And somehow, I don't know how it is connected to, you know, losing weight, uh, but somehow, you know, it also grabbed a lot of attention on YouTube, of course. And um, also, it's been revealed that it's a ripoff of a beer commercial from Brazil, which does the same thing with beer bottles to mm. surf. Anyway, the naturally the conservatives, the you know, they see the ad, uh, they don't. Well, first, they don't see any way connected to losing weight, and then also because you know it involves a woman potentially taking off her or swimsuit in the middle of the beach. So a lot, a lot of complaints rolled in, mm -hmm. and uh, finally, I think it got to about 150, and now it's been pulled from the buses. Mm. Um, but I mean, I, it, it, in, in, in terms of the, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to put it, the adult value or the adult material, you know, conceptually, it's not really that it's not all that. I mean, well, yeah, it's, it didn't really go that. I mean, it's not like you haven't seen Chrissy Chow's body in bikini. It's really nothing new in terms of content, mm -hmm. but um, I'm I'm kind of conflicted because one it it's not really a ad that I would like my kids to see when it's on the bus because that's where it gets shown yeah. on all the buses. Yeah. Um, but you know I don't I see those people who could go as far as to call the government to complain about it. Uh, a bit of um, what's the word here? Um, to put it nicely, too conservative. Mm. I think it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, but I mean. This is this is a society here also where you've got a lot of people who I guess will see that ad and buy into the fact that the slimming center works, even though I doubt that Chrissy Chow herself has ever actually been into a slimming center. Right. And that's the thing. It doesn't sell it almost like the, the whole ad is targeted to the wrong audience. Yeah. You know, if, if a girl sees her boyfriend, you know, staring at a TV, let's say it would be the guy staring at a TV when the ad comes on, all the women just turn away. They would be like, yeah, it's Chrissy Chow, you know, her bikini body. Yeah, uh, yeah why would it be like that? Uh, so it, it, it's complete, it's targeted the completely wrong audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it, besides the fact that it's ripped off of the beer commercial, you know, that's just not nice. Well, that's, you know, I mean, I I doubt that there's... Too, too many original thoughts circulating around in terms of commercial advertising anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that if, if we've seen, if we've seen one Chrissy Chow ad, it, we're probably, we've probably seen all of them. It's just going to be, you know, different variations of her in, in a bikini or her showing off some aspects of her body. 
There um, can't be enough of those. There can never be enough of those. <laughs> I, I don't know, Paul, have you, what are the, because there are some really mean-spirited diets here in Hong Kong. I've seen one uh, for about a year or two ago. It's for something called uh, diet station or slim station. Uh, these three girls, uh, two thin, one not so thin. They're waiting, I guess, for a ride and a car drives by. The two slim girls. Oh, yeah, girls, yeah. yeah, I know the one yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. The thing that amazes me with these commercials is... I, I guess I guess there are women out there who are very comfortable with themselves enough to want to take on these you know these roles in commercials, uh, much in the same way that you know uh, Fei Fei, the late Lydia Shum was. She I think she knew that she was always going to be the butt of jokes throughout her career in a lot of the movies that she did, and that her weight was going to be sort of the comedic hook. And at some point, she just said okay this is what i am this is how they're going to use me and this is what i'm going to do and i'm going to make the most of it and i guess there are just you know some women out there who when they go to audition for these roles they don't mind being that character being the you know the before girl if you will and knowing that the the product that's going to be sold is something that's not representative of them you know and it's selling this idea that the before is not desirable and the after is, and then they get a completely different person for the after role. And well, you won't see me at a slim station. I'll just take a walk around Victoria Park. <laughs> well, I, I, I do that, but then I think my lungs might come away a little bit more congested with uh, pollution than they were beforehand. <laughs> 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 All right, well, since we're on the topic of talking about things getting pulled and banned, uh, we've got a story about Bruno, uh, the film Bruno, coming from Sasha Baron Cohen, who's more famous for his earlier roles like Borat and Ali G. And apparently the promotion for his film, which is just now getting ready to start in Hong Kong, uh, I believe it starts tomorrow in local theaters, um, there was a problem not with the image. The image shows basically shows Bruno sort of looking over his shoulder and he's wearing some some kind of stockings and very short shorts. And the the advertising company said that the problem was not with the image, but it was actually with the Chinese version of the film title. And in in that translation, it suggests that Bruno uh, at some point strips naked in the film and pursues American men for sex. Um, which is what it does in the film yeah i I, allegedly i don't know i haven't seen it yet um but they said it's not a direct translation of the full title um (laughs) which is bruno delicious journeys through america for the purpose of making heterosexual males visibly uncomfortable in the presence of a gay foreigner in a mesh t-shirt is that a full title i didn't know that's well that's what they have listed here as the full title so um you know, in in terms in terms of the movie, if if you like Sasha Baron Cohen's style, uh, I've heard that the movie's fairly entertaining. If if you don't really like that style, then you probably, you know, if you didn't like Borat, you're obviously not going to like this because it's more of the same, just with a different type of character. But you know, going back to this notion of the ad being pulled because of, you know, some some things that are alluded to in the Chinese title. You know, I, I, I think that if, you know, you're 
working in a public area and you're advertising in a public area that's well trafficked by people of all ages that yeah maybe you don't want you don't necessarily want something like that uh in high traffic areas what are your thoughts kevin well the thing is the the local censorship board went they they already looked through all the advertising they looked through the title they gave the advertising campaign, yes, advertising campaigns apparently gets rated here by the censorship board. It got a category one. It means suitable for our audiences. So like the film distributor said, you know, how can the firm that's in charge of the MTR advertising, how can they just override the government's decision? Yeah. And, and, the government, and yeah. that's where the, that's where the real sort of controversy is coming from. So. Yeah. And I think the MTR or the advertising firm has been notoriously known for being over conservative anyway. I mean, I believe the first example I remember was Visible Secret. The advertising campaign involves a ghost, I, I think, on the MTR train. Or there was a scene, actually, even in the film that involves the ghost in the MTR train. And MTR actually requested that the filmmaker, yeah. anyway cut the scene. Yeah, I remember that quite vividly. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. When does an advertising firm decide what should be in a movie or what should be in a campaign, especially if the government has already says, okay. Yeah. Um, well, it, you know, that we, again, this is a society where people tend to complain about things that some people might see as a bit uh, out of context or, or a bit overboard. For example, in, in a, in the South China morning post article about this, uh, they, they mentioned the film Coco before Chanel the French film, which was playing a bit earlier this year, and that some people had apparently complained about the poster for that movie. Because, because it was a cigarette. Yeah. yeah, because she was holding a cigarette, and there's now anti-smoking laws in Hong Kong that prevent you from smoking inside. Um, so I guess people, you know, assumed that posters can't smoke as well. Since they can't, <laughs> so they got yeah, a bit yeah because people in France in the 50s never shouldn't be smoking as yeah. well. So. Um, so yeah, we'll have, we'll have to we'll have to see how well Bruno does. Perhaps some of this controversy will drag a few more people into the theaters. <laughs> Our final story um, for Hong Kong news this week. We've got quite a few. A uh, little tidbit about uh, Canto pop star Ronald Chang, uh, Chang Jong Gate, uh, who you probably, if you don't know him from his music, you know him from his movies like uh, Dragon Loaded, um, Supermodel. And definitely, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm, I consider myself a fan of Ronald Chang. He's probably one of the few stars in Hong Kong cinema today that would draw me in to watch a film. Um, I know that I was excited about seeing Kung Fu Cyborg a few weeks back because, in part, he was in it, and I was hoping that he was going to have a much bigger role. So he still has some film cred with me. I, I mean, I'll pretty much go see anything that he's in, at least for now. But apparently, according to this article, he got it, he's in a little bit of an altercation because he bought uh, a Mercedes-Benz and uh, he put down... Now, according to this, it was a deposit of Hong Kong $200,000 for a 2005 model and that the person uh, who he was purchasing this from sent him a 2004 model. So the difference of a year... Uh, can be pretty big sometimes. And so now he's going to court uh, for a hearing over this. And what I found interesting was not the fact that this was in the news, but then that they tacked on an earlier story about Ronald Chang to this little news blurb. And this is coming from The Standard. 
in that back in 2000, um, he apparently was on a plane flying to flying to Taiwan from Alaska, and he apparently had a little bit too much to drink. He got a bit rowdy, and as a result, he was um, he actually had to go to court in in Alaska, and uh, they just yeah, I believe he was whacked on the head by the by the captain. I yeah, think. yeah, and apparently they've got a picture of him. Uh, with it, with his head bandaged up, and apparently he was like rolling on the floor, screaming and uh, screaming, <laughs> screaming obscenities. And there, there are actual actual FBI court documents w- regarding this case. So I guess <laughs> it's pretty serious, you know, because I uh, apparently maybe because it's an international flight that he was on, so the FBI got involved. I don't know, but um, yeah, it was pretty pretty interesting because i didn't know about this story but i really didn't see what they were trying to what connection this earlier story had with uh the story about this lawsuit that he's now going through with the mercedes except that maybe they were trying to sort of paint him because the the title of the article is road rage uh grips turbulent singer and maybe they're trying to portray him as somebody who's got a very short temper or somebody who gets angry or has anger issues, maybe he needs to do a film like uh, Anger Management, you know, re- <laughs> the remake of who was it, Jack Nicholson and uh, or was yeah, it Adam Sandler? Adam Sandler, yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you? What are your? Did you? Did you know about this story, or do you think that uh, you know, no, mo- I, most I, comedians are? Do you think most funny guys tend to be very angry down underneath? That's why they go into comedy, maybe. Well, I think uh, the well, the Ronald Chang I knew. Um, at the time of the first incident, the plane incident was a long hair musician. Um, he wasn't really the funny type. He always just acted in a dramatic role, I think, most in 12 Nights at least. Uh, I'll talk about that later. Um, so then after this plane incident, then that's when his image became, was turned into the comedian. Mm. And it's been fine, I think, the whole time. The last few years, he's gotten quite a good reputation. Uh, he's not, he hasn't gotten any trouble. And, you know, like we were talking before we recorded the show, I don't blame him. If you pay two hundred thousand dollars for yeah, a I mean, specific model, you expect to get it. I've seen people get in worse temper tantrums for cheap, much cheaper things in restaurants. Yeah, anyway, exactly. I mean, if you're putting down a big chunk of change for something, and then the thing that you get is not the thing that you asked for, I mean, I, I think I don't think there's anything that has anything to do with any abnormal anger issues at all. That that's very very normal. And I wonder what how bad was the attitude of the mercedes dealer for Marlon chan to have to take him to court yeah you know what couldn't they just sort of settle it couldn't the mercedes people say oh i'm sorry uh just i'll bring you i'll give you back the car you ordered yeah it, and it, it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot of uh a lot of details so i'm not it's not really clear if he was dealing with a mercedes franchise but because it says you know he he ordered a 2005 but he got a 2004 um, maybe he was buying, you know, buying it secondhand, or maybe he was buying it used. Not really clear at this point, but yeah, I mean, like you were saying, if you spend a lot of money on something, you expect that, you know, at that level, you're going to be dealing with things uh, up very, very much above board. So might have been somebody just trying to pull a fast on on them. We don't know at this point. And most interestingly, I haven't read anything about it in the Chinese press, actually. Hmm, so yeah. even the Chinese press is not really that is that is not. I wonder why they chose to put it in this because usually the stand it's the opposite and like in the South China Morning Post and in the Standard they tend to omit a lot of the 
a lot of the stories about local stars and you know that they might have a little short paragraph every once in a while so i would assume that if this was because this was in a pretty big section in the standard that this would have been a major story in the local papers yeah hard because they couldn't find anyone that got married yeah slowly yeah, well, he was i mean he was he was partnered with Miriam for a while, wasn't he? Weren't they a couple? Yeah, yeah, they dated um, a while. I think, actually, it was during the time where he got the first incident. It might have been, they might have broken up before the drunken incident. I'm not sure. Oh. Yeah, they dated for a while. Maybe that's why she slipped through his fingers and he was upset. Can't get my Miriam, can't get my Mercedes. <laughs> what am I going to do? Make more movies, Ronald. Make more movies. Well, let's go on to some news from the international scene around the globe and got a couple news, uh, a couple bits of news dealing with some film festivals. Um, the first is a little bit of little piece of news that I came across about a Taiwan film festival and some hackers apparently hacked in to the website and um, they have basically tried to, uh, they, they, they put some messages up, I guess, apparently condemning, one of the Uyghur films uh, that's being shown called 10 Conditions of Love. And uh, so, you know, this is obviously going into that whole political issue that's going on in Northwest China. And this isn't the first time that this has happened, apparently. You, you were saying earlier um, that this has happened before, Kevin? Yeah, um, the Melbourne Film Festival premiered 10 Conditions of Love. And not only did all the Chinese films uh, were or voluntarily pulled out, but also hackers also attacked that film film festival's website also. And that just goes to show, you know, how scary the Chinese internet world is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I have nowhere near any level of computer skill to understand the hackers world, but I got to kind of think that if you're hacking a, film festival site that's kind of like you know being a bank robber and robbing the piggy piggy bank of a five-year-old you know it's like <laughs> you know it's not like you're doing anything you're not gaining any cred among the hacker community really when you do something like that ah uh, but a lot amongst the nationalist hacker community they have much respect I'm yeah sure. maybe, maybe you get a couple of nationalism points in your in your book um in other festival news, the, the Venice Festival is going on, and the big news, of course, is Hugo Chavez is making an appearance there. And there are some films that are being being debuted there uh, that I'm excited about. Uh, the Michael Moore film has played there, his new film on, it's called Capitalism, A Love Story, I believe. And I'm not a huge Michael Moore fan, but I'm very interested to see his take on the financial crisis, uh, as as it were. I've seen the trailer for his film, and I know that at, at one point he he does his typical sort of Michael Moore thing. He goes to one of the he goes to Wall Street and he tries to make a citizen's arrest of some Wall Street bankers. Which <laughs> you know, it th those scenes I don't care too much for. But when he gets into some of the exploring and explaining of events and how they happen. Um, that's the type of filmmaking of his that I tend to like that, you know, it, it sort of brings a lot of concepts and, and ideas and things that have happened that they talk about on 
other places using language that most people won't really follow or care to understand. And he really brings it down to, to people in layman's terms. So I'm looking forward to seeing that film. Also, uh, Soy Chen's Accident just premiered at Venice as well, and it's gotten some really good reviews. Well, that's good. And that's yeah. coming here in a few weeks, isn't it? Next week, yeah. yeah. So we can so talk we'll, about it. We'll be able to talk about that soon. Um, John Lasseter and Disney Pixar received uh, an award at a ceremony there as well. And interestingly, the award was given by George Lucas, who, as I was reading, apparently, he actually founded and started Pixar at, at one point. And... Uh, so it was it was nice that he was there to to give the award and uh, according to one article he I guess he sold it he sold the division back in 1986 for around 10 million dollars US and you got to kind of wonder if if you know at the time maybe he thought it was a good sale a good idea now he looks <laughs> at what it's done and he's going what was i thinking you know it's like howard the duck time you know <laughs> Well, that was just before he made episode one, so I'm sure it was a long period of what was I thinking? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I'm I, I'm I'm glad that you know Pixar and the work that they've done is getting rest recognized at at this level because I think that just because something's animated doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't deserve the recognition that goes along with um, some of the awards that they present at these festivals. So it was nice to see that. And any news that you know about um, coming out of the festivals that you wanted to mention? I know you talked about Accident and anything else that I forgot to cover? Um, I believe that uh, Hitoshi Matsumoto, who made uh, Dai Nipponjin, um, have you heard of this, Paul? It's a, a mockumentary about uh, a disrespected superhero. Is who that Big, Big Man of Japan? Big Man Japan, yeah, yeah his new yeah, film, yeah. I believe, is also um, premiering in Venice. Symbol. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my students actually did a paper on Big Man of Japan last semester, and from what I read in the paper, it's apparently quite a crazy film, especially yeah. especially if you're into like that whole you know that whole genre of films, uh, the Japanese superhero style films or the big kaiju monster movies that it's it's very very fun but also very very strange in yeah. some of its imagery yeah hitoshi matsumoto is easily the the strange or one of the most more talented uh entertainer turned filmmaker coming off japan his symbol sounds even stranger than big man japan um and you know i'm looking forward to reviews coming out because he's also playing in toronto um and essentially a few more festivals on the road premieres next week in japan so i look forward to reviews coming out of that
right, let's move on and go on to our East Screen topics for this week. This week we've got two films to talk about. The first film being uh, from local directors and some new local stars, and that is Trick or Cheat. Kevin, you want to take us through this one, give us a bit of a synopsis and some of your thoughts on this? Oh dear. Um, Trick, Trick or Cheat is the follow-up um, of See You on YouTube, who was, uh, which was made by Seven Director, which hence the group is called Sevens. Um, their leader, so to speak, is uh, Director Oxai Pang. I believe that's the one dating Angelica Lee. Um, anyway, so this time it's only six of the sevens, uh, and Oxide's still on board. Uh, it's a teen film. Uh, it's about cheating at the uh, general exam that are taken by secondary school students. Uh, it stars Jem, uh, up and coming, very young singer, um, quite talented singer actually, not very talented actress though, um, along with William Chang, uh, uh, an artist at a emperor who is known for his dancing skills and dances a lot in this film so the plot so to speak the quote-unquote plot is about these two kids jem and william has to um lead this group of ragtag group of kids uh into passing the exam otherwise they cannot perform in the dance performance at the end of the year um so then they have to come up all kind of crazy ways to cheat during the test, including uh, farting. Uh, I believe there's some demon possession in there. Uh, essentially, all kinds of tricks. But um, you know, to say the word "story" isn't you know wouldn't we describe what this movie has? Would you say, Paul? Yeah. Well, I if you've seen see you in YouTube, um, as from what I and it's been a while since I've watched it, but from what I what I remember from that film, it's somewhat disjointed because you do have seven directors and you do get the feeling of seven different segments at points almost, or, or, um, you know, the, the story does kind of run together and you've got all these characters, but there's a clear sort of delineation. I didn't really like seeing YouTube, but I found parts of it were amusing, but here it just dragged on and on and on and on. And it just seemed like it was going nowhere. The the conflicts, the so-called conflicts between the characters were just sort of never resolved. They they never it, it seemed like there was never a conflict to begin with. It seemed like someone had forgotten they had set up a conflict and like at the end. And it almost and then there's that, of course, the the infamous dance performance scene at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah, the well, 15 and, minute. And the, the the thing is, is that I think that there was enough material here to do a story that could have been clever and could have been, you know, uh, commenting very relevantly on some local issues. For example, in the in the beginning of the film, uh, there's a scene where it shows the kids out somewhere. I don't know if they're in Mongkok or somewhere, but they're out in the street doing, you know, sort of, sort of their little dance group doing a dance in the street. And then suddenly uh, an acid bottle drops <laughs> in the street. You know, and that's commenting on, and you know, just 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 this past week, we there was another acid attack, and it's all big in the news. And you think that that they're they're putting that there, that it's going to have some bearing later on in the film, and it never does. It's just like, well, this is something that's happening currently, so we'll just throw that in there. It doesn't have any real context on anything else that happens in in the film, and that's unfortunate. And and there's there's also some opportunity to comment on the star tutors for example um the that's these tutorial centers that 
market themselves using young teachers, very attractive teachers uh, in such a way to make them look like pop stars and to make them look, you know, very hip and very cool. And you go and you study there and the, the fees for these centers are very expensive and they guarantee that you'll pass the exams with flying colors. And there's a lot of controversy around some of these star tutors and they try and, you know, fit that in here as well, but it's just not as cleverly done as it probably could have been. And I think that it, it, it definitely had some potential, but it just never really delivered on any of it. And, and just the exam taking process itself, which is very, very, you know, it, it's, it's a time of extreme pressure for a lot of students because this is pretty much going to determine whether they can go to university or not. Mm -hmm. and, and if not, you know, then they're probably going to be stuck doing, you know, some low paying minimum wage jobs if they can't pull out of this. So it is a time of, you know, for students that is, you know, it, it's very, could, could be very frightening. You know, it's a time when they're not really sure what they're going to be doing. And they just, you know, they really don't use the material that they have. And, and it, instead they, they roll a film that I think at the end almost encourages cheating. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the title, the, the, the Cantonese title is called Oi, Oi Chut Mao, which yeah, I'm sure my tones are wrong, but um, basically means love, love to cheat. And they, they, the English title trick or cheat, you know, it's kind of a play on, on English words, which is fine. But I, I was asking some of my local friends, what does that mean? Chut Mao, because literally it means out the, out the cat, right? Mm -hmm. And so did a little bit of research and found out one of three possible answers to this little Chinese Cantonese enigma. And the, the first is that because chut mao means to cheat, but why does saying out the cat mean to cheat? The first is that it comes from a relation to Shakespeare uh, when he uses the word copycat at some point in one of his plays. Uh, the second is that it comes from a Sung Dynasty scholar who, <laughs> who was taking the exam and he had you know, he had a Chinese pillow. Now, if you understand, in the old days, in, in that time in China, pillows were like these ceramic blocks. They weren't like, you know, Western feather pillows. So he had this little ceramic block pillow with him because apparently, I, you know, these exams would take a long time and people would fall asleep or they'd, you know, you weren't allowed to leave until the exam was complete. So he had this pillow and this pillow inside had notes and things that he could use to cheat. And on the pillow at some point was a, was a, either a cat or the, the character for the word cat. Um, and so that's how this, this term came about. The, the third idea is that it comes from um, somewhere in northern China. It's a variant of, the, of, a, of Mandarin dialect that um, sounds like, you know, hiding or being sneaky or something like this. That is the the word Mao sounds, it has a sound that's similar to what they would say for this. So I'm not sure which of those is really accurate, but that's a little bit of research that I found out. So a, a lot of this film is around the students, you know, is, is, is the premise that the students are going to cheat on these tests. And they actually have some potential to show some clever ways. I mean, one of the things that they talk about early on is the use of the, the high frequency. And I thought that this was going to be really interesting because 
this is very popular right now with young people as a ringtone. And I was, I was telling one of the friends we were watching with us saying, Hey, you know, that's a real thing. That's not made up that there's certain frequencies that young people can hear that older people like myself cannot, (laughs) um, that as you get older, your hearing, uh, debilitates a little bit and you can no longer hear these frequencies, but young people can. And so young people are downloading these frequencies to use as a ringtone because for example, in classes, they can hear their phone ring, but their old teacher won't hear it. Um, and so they, you, they, they, the students develop, um, a way to utilize this technology to send like a Morse code for the exam answers. And, but it's like after that, it, you know, the ideas pretty much go off because like you were saying, they, they come up with a farting gag, which is kind of lame and over, overused. I think it, it's used to an extreme that's just in, inhuman and, and probably impossible. And that's, that's pretty much it. You see a bunch of, if you watch the trailer, you see them using a bunch of other gags that never make it into the film. They make it into sort of the credit role as I don't know if it's NG or they actually just intended to put it there, but it seems like they could have, again, it seems like they fell short. They could have done a lot more with, and they were on the trailer, actually all those tricks that they show. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just, I, it was kind of disappointing because I know I was looking forward to seeing the film and I thought it was just going to be a bit more clever than it was. I don't know. This movie must have been running at that frequency, that a hell of a low frequency, because I sure as hell didn't hear anything good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got young ears. I mean, you should have heard everything. Yeah. yeah. No, not young enough, apparently. <laughs> Let's move on from Trick or Cheat and talk about Sophie's Revenge. Now, we talked a little bit about this film way back in episode one, I believe. And uh, we actually got to see this film last week. This is a film coming from mainland China, starring Zhang Ziyi and Fan Bingbing and Peter Ho in a sort of a somewhat typical love triangle story. Uh, Kevin, you want to give us a little bit more of the synopsis of this? Okay, so Zhang Ji plays um, a comic artist who has recently been dumped by her boyfriend, played by So Ji Sub, Korean actor, because he met um, Wang Jing Jing, an actress played by Fan Bing Bing. Uh, actually, I've heard that it's a, it's, it, the, the naming is intentional. Anyway, so um, really mad from her being dumped, uh, Zhang Ji devised a revenge plot. And brings in uh, Peter Ho, uh, a photographer from Taiwan, who also might have a thing against this Wan Jingjing. As the whole movie is her planning, uh, falling on through these different plans of revenge. Mm. And meanwhile, of course, the two two of these people will fall in love, and you know it's not easy. It's not hard to guess who. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, if you've seen a romantic comedy anywhere at any time that deals with a love triangle of some sort, you've probably seen some variation of this story. So it's nothing really new. Um, but that being said, it's fairly entertaining. Uh, I, I, I found myself fairly entertained with the story, even though you, you, you know how it's going to end up, you know, going forward, you know, who's going to end up with who and you know, sort of why, 
Um, they try to be a bit clever in revealing a few relationship things, but actually I kind of figured out what the relationships were. I mean, it wasn't that difficult. Um, so you'll probably figure them out, a, you know, a, a short time before the reveal. So it's not overly clever in anything that it tries to do here, but it's, again, it's, it's well-directed. Um, it's got some nice cinematography. It's got some some scenes of CGI and some animation in, in a few places because the main character is a, is, she is a cartoonist and a novelist. And so it does try to utilize that style of work in a few places. Um, well, I, I think if anything, it just shows the, the influence of uh, the American TV drama, Alec Mabio, because a lot of the tricks they use here, the animation, the, the um, using CGI to enhance a character's feelings, that's all, you know, recycled here i mean it's nice it's it looks nice but it, it doesn't feel i think none of it just feels really original interestingly um the film itself doesn't uh name itself to be taking place in any specific city yeah it, it it's it it's like an every city and a, and a no city all in all in one but at the same time you know it's it's fun it's it's light and it's i think one of the ways i was describing it after we watched it was it's sort of like cotton candy that you might get at the fair. You know, it's it's sweet, but at, at the end of it, there's no real substance to it. And if you want one interesting angle to look at this film is that um, Zhang Zi and Fan Bingbing are essentially two of the most hated actresses in China among the people. And um, a lot of people are saying that the Fan Bingbing character, Wang Jingjing, the actress, is essentially playing, you know, a, a screen version of Zhang Ziyi. Mm. Yeah, so well, and, and she and Fan Bingbing even said that during the promotion. Somehow blurted and, it out. And how do you think that Zhang Ziyi did in this sort of somewhat new genre for her as a comedy? Do you think she did fairly well or not really? I think her uh, the self-deprecation stuff was nice. I mean, she was kind of cute. You know, Americans, the foreigners would love it. People who love Zhang Ziyi would love her in this movie. But for me, uh, I just I felt like I just kind of felt like she was really mugging it up most of the time. Mm. This her trying to present this nice, um, nice romantic comedy image of herself, and yet in every scene, even when she has a broken leg and is recovering on the bed, she's like well dressed in these really expensive clothes and perfectly made up. Let's move on to talk about our West screen film, and this week, Kevin, you're going to tell us about Five Hundred Days of Summer. Is it? Yes. Uh, this is um the indie film apparently of the year in america uh it's made quite a bit of money um it stars chosen uh sorry i'll start again okay. so 500 days of summer is the indie hit of the summer in america uh it stars joseph gordon levitt uh no paul how how far back does your joseph gordon levitt days go for me it's third off from the sun uh that would probably be about the same i'd have to say yeah yeah, yeah. so so this a young actor that I've seen from from when I was a kid has now grown into a romantic lead, and that's what is in this movie. He plays um a greeting card writer who meets the girl of his dreams, Summer, played by Zoe Deschanel, I believe she was in Yes Man. Um, and interestingly enough, unlike a lot of romantic comedies where the whole story is told linear in linear fashion, you start at the end, you know, even the narration tells you this is not a love story, mm-hmm. so it shows these two people um, coming together, uh, his his and his belief of true love, 
her and her not believing in love at all and you know how they managed somehow to become a couple and of course how they break up so the whole story is told in non-union fashion it jumps back and forth it's told in um sort of a fashion where as the title suggests it it's cut by days of their relationship so let's say it would start at the 239th day then it would cut to the first day then it would cut to the hundred and something day it's a really interesting way of telling the story and um i think for audiences who have gone through a really unforgettable relationship or um had a really bad end to relationship will will connect to the film but for me the problem is that it's all approach at this really kind of sweet attitude i mean the film is pg-13 in the states and you know there's literally a sequence where the character is so happy where he breaks out in dance in the middle of a park you know the whole story is kind of sweet even the the darker aspect of it is this sort of oh he goes and buys twinkies and drinks a beer mm-hmm. and then he wakes up um so it will have it, i can see why it has a very wide appeal and there's a lot of pop culture references that that you know us kids really like um so it's a really audience movie um and the emotions are easy to connect to, but is it really the classic, the the best movie ever that some people I know have said? I don't think it lives up to that hype, but is it a good romantic comedy? It is. Um, and I think it might have crossover potential here in Hong Kong if enough people pick up on it. Um, so I, I'm kind of on the fence about this film. Let's move on, and we'll talk very briefly about a topic this week. We've spent quite a bit of time on news, but for this week's topic, I want to talk a little bit about some festivals, uh, because Kevin is actively attending a festival right now, and we've got a couple upcoming festivals. So if you're going to be in Hong Kong, you might want to pay attention. Um, A little bit later in the month, uh, 17th through the 27th of September, is the Australian Film Festival, which will be having showings... uh, split between the Hong Kong Arts Center, the Fringe Club, and the Hong Kong Space Museum. And we'll post a link on the website um, so that you can see, because they've got quite a few films that will be screened uh, within that 10-day period. There's also, at the end of the month, just following the Australian Film Festival and picking up on September 28th, 29th, and the 30th, is the Brazilian Film Festival, and they'll be screening just a handful of films. I think they're having one film each day um, of some Brazilian films to coincide with Brazilian National Day. And those three will be screened at 7 p.m. on each evening at the Agnes B. Cinema, and those will have free admission, and admission will be done on a first-come, first-served basis. So if you happen to be fortunate enough to listening to this podcast from Hong Kong, or you're going to be passing through Hong Kong uh, from the middle middle part to the end of September, you might want to try and catch some of the films in those two festivals. Um, and for those uh, coming here mid-October, there's the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival uh, that'll be run by Broadway Cinemas. And then uh, after that, in November, there's the Hong Kong Independent Asian Film Festivals. Um, I'll probably be going to about 30 movies between those two. So I have a lot of films to talk about later on. Ah, uh, to be young and jobless. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
But this does bring up a question that we can possibly talk about for a few minutes on the nature of festivals and the nature of festivals in Hong Kong. And it seems like there is, you know, con- a, a period of continuous festivals. Um, and it's almost like Hong Kong is trying to fill the entire calendar with festivals from different countries and different periods and different genres throughout the year. And in some ways, for a person such as myself, I mean, I like a good festival now and then, but it just seems to me to be overkill. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you think that there are too many festivals and that having too many sort of diminishes the impact of a good festival? Or do you think that you can't have enough of a good thing? I, myself, I... One of my favorite things about moving back to Hong Kong is the diverse uh, range of films that I could choose to watch. I think Hong Kong is one of the most best places on earth to watch a film. And if you don't get, let's face it, the the, the theatrical distribution business here is really narrow. You're not going to get a lot of these movies that, you know, maybe would get a big independent release or, or art house release in the UK or in the West, in the West but that wouldn't happened in Hong Kong, that's what the film festival are for, for me. Uh, instead of, you know, trying to hunt down DVDs uh, or pirated versions of it, I can go to a big screen and actually watch these movies. Now, Kevin, for me, yeah, Kevin, for me, it's, yeah. We know you don't watch pirated movies. <laughs> no. I just want to no. make that officially clear that here no. on the podcast, we do not watch pirated films. We do not. And we do not ad- advocate the watching of, or the making of, or the downloading of, or in any relation to whatsoever, uh, pirated films. Yes, guys, keep me, keep me, give me a job. <laughs> keep my job. Help me keep my job. I am a film critic. Um, and, uh, and, you know, film festivals shouldn't be about the film festivals for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what happened last year with um, Between Yang Yichi and uh, the Broadway cinemas, I think that was a shame because it was a case of where the politics or between these two organizations got in the way. But of course, the good thing is that offset, that offshooted the, a new film festival, the Hong Kong Asian Independent Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So that means more movies uh, for the audience here that they wouldn't usually get to see. So for me, you know, more, the more movies, the better, even though, you know, I won't get any sleep or I won't have a social life or I won't be able to record the podcast or, for me, more movies the better. Mm. Well, let's let's hope you can still record record the podcast. I'm sure we will. I'll make time, even from the cinema. I'll do it. Getting cl- close on time, so let's move on to our flying Buddha pick of the week. And this week, Kevin, what film do you have to recommend for us? So following uh, 500 Days of Summer, um, I was mentioning one of the films that really um, showed a good portrayal of a relationship, and it's 12 Nights by Aubrey Lam, uh, one of the screenwriters uh, back in the UFO days in Hong Kong. Um, as the title suggests, it, takes, it shows a relationship um, by taking 12 clips or 12 sections of that relationship and then show it from beginning to end. It stars Cecilia Chen and Ethan Chen, a very unlikely couple, uh, even back then. Um, and, you know, so like I said, from beginning to the end, it just shows how they meet, 
how they come together, how they argue, and then of course at the end, no, not really a spoiler because you know that's the whole premise of the movie, how they break up. Um, for me, I think what Aubrey Lamb does here, even though the movie is, as Kozo has said in his review in LoveIssueFilm.com, is that it is quite depressing, but in that way, it's only depressing because it feels real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, from each stage, it captures the, the the psychology of a you know of a person in love and a person out of love or a person you know suffering from mm-hmm. love, so to speak. And I think it's really it's really painful to watch, but it's painful to watch because you can identify with it. And for me, that's a really successful romance movie. Have you seen this movie, Paul? No, I haven't. It's and I've I've tried to make it a point to see. Almost all of Eason movie, Eason's movies, and it's the one film that I, I haven't seen. Yeah. Sadly, the DVD has um, become really hard to find, and it's been kind of underrated. I, I think it should deserve. It deserves a lot more recognition. And I hope. I hope whoever owns the right to the movie, Golden, whoever took the Golden Harvest catalog, would remaster the film and bring it back. Mm. Well, we'll have to look forward to the seeing that in the future, if that's the case. Uh, my pick for this week is going to tie back to our first film that we talked about, uh, Trick or Cheat. And in part, if you're looking for a film that's over the top and about high school students and about, you know, taking exams and got some fight scenes in between, then my film is going to probably be a much better alternative than Trick or Cheat or see you on YouTube, and that is My Schoolmate the Barbarian. Now, this is an older film from 2001. It's been around a while. I uh, haven't seen it in too many stores, though, of late, so I'm not sure if it's if it's currently out of press or if it's going to be getting a new release in, in the coming days. But this is a film coming from Wong Jing and Billy Chung, and it's starring Stephen Ma and Nicholas Tse before he was married. And basically, it's the story of two students. One student is Edward, played by Stephen Ma, who basically is a very excellent student, and he's aced his his exams, and uh, he's supposed to be put into um, one of the what they call the band one schools. Now, in the old days, they rated local schools by bands, band one through band five. I've been told that they don't do this anymore, but still a lot of people will refer to various institutions with a, as a band, a band one, band two, band three. And so he's supposed to be in a band one school, and through a mix-up he gets sent to a band five school that has a similar sounding name. And he finds that it's the tradition of this school to basically um, go to the classroom, go to, a, go to an empty classroom at the end of the school day and duke it out sort of Street Fighter style. So obviously this is very a very over-the-top film. It's got some really good fight sequences, and it's got some very funny scenes. It's, Joe features Joey Young um, as sort of the heroine, and the, but the main story is the friendship between the two characters, uh, Nicholas Zay and Stephen Fung. So rather than looking at a film uh, like Trick or Cheat that's trying to be over-the-top but doesn't really make it, this film just goes so far beyond <laughs> anything that you might actually find in high school life on a legitimate level that it just becomes mindless fun. Um, so it's a good time. Very similar in some aspects to uh, the Korean film Volcano High, 
which is sort of another film along the genre that just goes really far out there in terms of the the grouping of high school students and and things that they they do in their high school years. If on the alternative though you would prefer to see a film that's much more realistic uh, in its depictions of what high school or secondary school life is actually like in Hong Kong, I would recommend instead the documentary Secondary School by local documentarian uh, Tammy Chung. And this is a this is a, a film that tries to take a very impartial look at the the school life as it goes on uh, in a few secondary schools here in Hong Kong. And while I don't agree that it's totally impartial as the film tries to tries to tries to be and tries to claim it is, um, it does give a, a much more thorough look at what local school life is like. So. Again, a couple alternatives if um, you're looking to, for something along a similar lines uh, as Trick or Cheat and some of the themes that are, that are being put forth therein. All right, that's going to about do it for uh, our show this week. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with some of the things that we're going to be doing, some of the things that we're up to, you can follow Kevin along at his blog, The Golden Rock, over at lovehongkongfilm.com. Kevin, some other ways some people can follow along with what you're doing or get in touch with you? Yes, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at The Golden Rock. That's one word. Or you can contact me uh, via email of thegoldenrock at gmail.com. And as always, you can find these podcasts hosted on our site at www.kongcast. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T. Dot com. I think next week we'll be talking probably about Kung Fu Chefs and, Yay. <laughs> and whatever else we can manage to squeeze in between now and our next show. So until then, we wish you all good viewing and we'll see you next time. See you all next week. Bye.